All right, you ready, man? Yeah. One sec. Wait, hold on, stop, stop, I'm sorry, sir. Why? Uh, you can't drink in the lab, it's against regulations and lab policy. Oh, okay. Yeah. By the way, you don't have your goggles on. Oh. Where's your goggles at, Art? Do I really have to wear these? No. I mean, yeah, but, yeah, but no. Are you gonna wear them? No. What is up, everybody? Today we've got a very special episode of Connecting Cannabis with a very special person, Aaron Riley. Aaron's actually one of the people that I've seen start from the beginning with this cannabis company and really grow to the industry mogul that he is today. Chances are, if you are getting a product in California, legal cannabis, Aaron's company is the one that was in charge of testing it. So without any further ado, what's up, Aaron? How's it going, man? Thanks for the intro. Of course, did I miss anything? No, I think you got it. All right, nice, nice. Well, you know, let's just dive right into it. What is the story of CannaSafe? Like, how did you guys uh, start and kind of get to the place that you are today? So CannaSafe was founded in 2011. It was a father-son duo. Um, in 2012, CannaSafe got ISO accredited. It was the first accredited cannabis lab in the world. And kind of a cool story. You know, back then they called the accrediting body and said, hey, can you guys come and accredit us? And the the auditors who would have done it just kind of laughed and they're like, haha, no, your name's CannaSafe, not happening. Um, and it took like five or six months really just to convince them to accredit, say, hey, it doesn't matter what we're testing, you guys are just accrediting our process, quality control, all of those things. And they were able to convince them to come out and do the accreditation. So, you know, that's kind of a cool story. I became involved in 2016 and, uh, you know, now we ended up here. How did the original idea for CannaSafe come about? Like, how did you guys identify the opportunity that you know, it's going to be legal, somebody needs to test it, you know, it's going to be in the regulations because you guys were really one of the first people that were able to do that, you know, get your stuff together, get set up and say, hey, we're ready. Right? Yeah. So when I started, I, I started in, two, I officially started in 2016, but I spent like a year or a year and a half before that really just researching the space. I knew I wanted to be in California because of the size of the market um, and really understanding the testing market and what that was going to uh, what was going to happen, it was really good timing because there was no regulations then. It was kind of like the wild, wild west. Labs were only doing potency, you know, pesticides really didn't happen until probably five or six months after I started doing it. We were one of the first labs to offer pesticide testing. So it was really elementary when I started. And we knew that the BCC was going to come in and add testing regulations and there was going to be this new influx of demand because California was one of the few states that had an existing market that was going to be funneled through regulation and the size of the market. Had you gone through something similar in a different industry before or this was all just based on research and kind of, you know, a really good educated guess of where the industry is going to be heading? Yeah, I would consider myself an entrepreneur and I've got pretty good vision into the future. I didn't, I didn't really know what any of this lab stuff was when I showed up. I didn't know what HPLC was. I got a C minus in chemistry. You're not a scientist. Uh, not at all. Okay. Um, but I spent a ton of time learning, like just learning about the instruments, learning about the technology um, and really and really making a bet on where it was going to be at in two years. You know, that was when I started. I always try to stay ahead of stuff like what's going to happen? How is it going to happen? How is it going to affect the players? Like one of the things that we used to do that really was able to help set us this space to get us to the point where we could test a third of all the products in California was, was workflow. You know, we used to do the high times testing and they would drop off 400 samples and they'd be like, hey, can you get this back in three days? That's a lot of testing in three days, especially back when we had, you know, a small lab, one set of equipment. Like if anything broke or went wrong, we weren't going to be able to deliver. So we had to really figure out workflow, like how to get all these samples out in those days, how to stack them on the instruments. And that was really what helped lead us to be able to develop this space 
to be able to handle you know four or five hundred samples a day every day nice. and and not have issues yeah nice so in the early days uh you said you had one set of instruments right how many employees did you start with when i first started we had like four employees and we nice. had one not even complete set of instrument because it was pre-regulation like we'd had we had almost we had pretty much everything except for an icpms okay um and that was you know end of 2016 early 2017 we you know we did pesticides solvents terpenes micro potency all of those things okay and how did you get the funding together for the first like team and the first set of instruments um so i actually just went all in you know i okay uh, I maxed out all my credit cards. I had, you know, like, you know, a little over $100,000 in cash. I borrowed like $400,000 to buy instruments, and I just, you know, I kind of bet all on myself. Uh, before I was doing the deal, I had a, I had a, you know, friend mentor I was going to do it with, and he, they kind of backed out at the last minute. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to do this. So I mean, I, dude, uh, can, can you blame them? <laughs> You're like, we're going to test the product that's not federally legal, and there's no regulation that says you have to test this product, but we know that one day you'll have to, right? I mean, I, I think it wasn't really that. It was just I didn't like the deal. I mean, okay. I could have got money from a lot of people, right. but I didn't really like the deal. So, you know, after I kind of got started, it came back in like in a small way, but it was never, I mean, it's really just been partners. We've never taken outside capital in. Very cool. um, we own, you know, a majority of the equipment that we have in here. So it's kind of a, you know, it's like the American success story where you make it and you don't, you know, you don't, we never, we've always been solicited by investors, but we've never had to go out there and, and take capital. Nice, nice. That's a great position to be in. Yeah. Well, uh, who were some of the first key hires that you made? Um, I would say the first key hire was Antonio Fraser. He's, he just got promoted to VP of operations. Um, he's actually a friend of mine. We played college football together, so he's a little bit older than me. I was 19, 18, 19 at Furman University, and you know, we were kind of friends from back then. Um, he had gone to work in aerospace in uh, Baltimore. So I called him up and I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing a lab thing. I know you run a lab and you guys have the same accreditation. It's different, you know, different industry. And, you know, he was obviously, we, we'd always been excited about cannabis. So he was, uh, hey, let me, let's learn about this. And, and early on, he actually was trying to sell me on doing like a toxicology lab. I'm like, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do cannabis. Um, and it really took me a year to kind of get him to commit to the idea and move out here. But he was, <clears throat> he was the first person that I brought in. And he came on probably seven, eight months after I had started. So how did the ISO thing come into play? Was it you know, him that did that? Or did you come up with the idea of, hey, we need to go after this ISO accreditation? So the company was always, has been accredited since 2012. But Antonio's experience was having that accreditation in an aerospace lab. So the quality control and standards were like 10 light years ahead of where we were at the right, time. Right, right. So he came in, he kind of laughed at our accreditation. He's like, you guys are accredited, but this is a joke. Um, and I said, let's fix it. So he's really responsible for getting us to where we're at today, where we're setting the bar in terms of quality control and accreditation. Um, you know, we've been pushing to the aerospace or FDA level ever since, you know, he got involved. You know, we do we go above and beyond. We have we do a PFC audit, which is another third party audit, the ISO audit. We do proficiency testing multiple times a year, more than is what required by the BCC. Uh, you know, we're really trying to set the bar like, you know, we're a leader in our space and we want everybody to follow along. We want to be influential in terms of, you know, having people follow the regulations and what that looks like. So we believe that we have to do that to say, hey, everyone else should have to do this. I mean, I see that you have a aerospace guy that literally came in and is like, hey, we're going to treat cannabis to the same levels of aerospace. And, you know, I don't know many other stories of people that like do it that way. You know, it's like this is cannabis. We're going to do it this way until something better comes along. Then we have to beat that. Right. But you're just like, we're just going to do it the best way. And then everybody else is going to have to catch up. Yeah, I would say we're I mean, we're obviously highly competitive, but, you know, that's part of the, the story of our success. But, yeah, we just 
we went all the way. We didn't say what's the minimum we can do to get by because we would have saved a lot of money doing that and yeah. a lot of time. But we said, hey, let's go all the way. Like, let's set the bar. Let's reset the bar from where it's at um, and just keep driving that. Nice. Nice. So going back to the ISO accreditation, can you explain to people what that is? Yeah, so the ISO, it's ISO 17025 is the accreditation that's required in cannabis, specifically in California and a lot of the other states that have robust quality control um, in place. And what that is, is accreditation is basically you're validating all of your processes, your methods, you're doing what you say you're going to do. And there's traceability and accountability. So every sample that you see that's being tested over here, we know who prepped it, we know which solvent or solvents were used, the suppliers for those solvents, the lots for those solvents, every piece of consumable, everything that goes into that test for that one thing, we have all of those records and that data. Is that required by the BCC and cannabis specifically, or uh, why did you decide to do it then? So the BCC, we've been obviously been doing it before the BCC made a requirement. The BCC does require, but they're, it's a little bit softer and there's a runway for people. They have like a year after they get their license, they can be pending, and you can be pending by literally scheduling an audit. So, or have, do, like there's a lot of labs that get accredited to test one thing, like they're accredited to do potency testing. There are testing labs out there right now that even though it is mandated by metric to get the ISO certification, they are pending ISO certified. They're pending. Okay. I think right now we, Antonio actually was just doing a report on this for us, but I think there's only like two or three that actually have the full accreditation with all the analytes, how it's going to be required for everyone kind of once this honeymoon licensing process expires. Right, right. And so what does the, the process look like? You know, the guys from ISO, they just come down and what, what type of things are they looking for? So you have to schedule an audit. And what they do is they show up, they want to review all your SOPs, your methods, traceability for your solvents, chemicals, everything that you order. They, and they basically come through and they go through sections, they'll ask people questions, they'll ask people for records. Um, like if you make a mistake in the lab, you have to file a CAPA and a corrective action like, why did this happen? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to address it? It's all about accountability and traceability. You, you should have, you have to have records for everything, for every sample, every piece that went into it. And they're just basically coming in to make sure from a third party perspective that you're doing what you say you're going to do and you're holding yourself accountable. Well, it seems like a lot of work, right? But I think, you know, it's safe to say that it all just completely paid off. I mean, the testing lab fits in such a crucial piece of the supply chain, right? You can't sell any product without it being tested first. So can you break that down for us and how the testing lab does fit into the supply chain? Yeah, sure. So it, we fit in a couple ways. The first way is through R&D, right? If somebody wants to make gummies or a vape cart, they need to check the trim that they make into the crude, that make into the oil, that they make into the first batch of gummies or that they mix with terpenes and fill in a vape cart. So we're instrumental in that portion of the supply chain process. And then once somebody has their final product, whether it's a vape cart, flour, or an edible, they have to get that batch tested for every skew, every flavor, um, every time they make a batch. So we go to the distribution license when their batch is ready, final packaged in final form, and we pick random samples from that and we bring that back to the lab and we test that. So you're testing along the way and then you're testing the finished product as well. Correct. So everything's ready to sell, you know, they have everything packaged and, and then you guys go out and you pick one or a few samples, right? You bring it back to the lab and you test that? Yeah. So that's, so we, we do, uh, it's a random sampling. So we go to the distributor, they have the whole batch there. And we, depending on how big the batch is, whether it's units or it's flour, we take random samples from that. We have a, you know, random sampling process. And then we tamper seal that, you know, chain of custody, everybody that's touched it, it you know, that whole process is on camera. Everything is 
signed off on all the way until it makes it into the lab, and then it starts the testing process once it hits the lab. Obviously, that could lead to scenarios where they put in all this work, you know, they grew the cannabis, they made it into, you know, a tincture or a cartridge, it's packaged, it's ready to go, you guys test it, and it fails a test, right? Absolutely, yeah, and that's, that's, that goes back to the importance of doing that R&D and proficiency testing along the way for those guys that are making these products, is you want to know about a problem before it's a problem, right? Because there's a lot of solutions for stuff, like there's a solution for mold, there's a solution even for pesticides. Like you can typically overcome a lot of problems that you could get, or if you're, you know, if you're a brand and you're selling high volume, you don't even want to buy something that's potentially contaminated. You just don't even want to deal with it. It's a waste of time. Um, so the more data, the more testing you do along the way, you can avoid those things. And that's kind of what we've noticed. Like as we've grown, a lot of our biggest clients were kind of in the similar position a year and a half or two years ago, where they're trying to do everything right. They're trying to learn as much as they can, and they've really taken off because they don't have issues. They don't fail batches. Like you know, the fail rates you know, seven, eight percent, theirs is like one or two. And those are the ones that you're seeing like succeed and do it best at what they're doing. They're succeeding. They don't have problems keeping their shelf space. They don't have problems going to the new stores. They don't have problems delivering. They don't have problems launching a new flavor or skew because they know the whole process along the way. Like if you're just trying to launch something new and you don't do that, like you're just playing Russian roulette. Like, you know, you might lose 50 or 100 grand on a batch just because you're trying to rush something out and you know, you don't do it right. You don't dot Got your it. I's and cross your T's. Got it. So the ones that have the processes in place and kind of have learned to not only deliver a good product, but have a good process are the ones that you would see or you do see succeeding in the market. Yeah, I call them like the segment killers. Like, you know, for us in testing, we have, you know, a, between a quarter and a third of the market at any given time. I would say we're a segment killer. We're probably twice as big as anybody else in our space. And then a lot of our clients are like, you know, you name top topical vape, you name the top brands in most segments, most of them test here, just because we can handle the volume. Um, but, you know, we help them too when they're, hey, we want to launch a new product, give us a call. We'll walk you through all the mistakes that we've seen other people make so you don't have to do it. It's kind of a value add that we offer to our clients. Nice. And uh, so when, they do, when you do get the product, what exactly are you testing for? So it depends on whether it's flour or it's uh, like infused product. The difference between the two is infused gets a solvents test add on, flour doesn't. But we're testing for microbial, pesticides, potency, um, solvents if it's infused, heavy metals, terpenes, foreign matter, moisture. It's about eight tests uh, per sample. How long does the process take? Um, it really depends on workflow. Like for instance, microbial takes the longest because you have a 24 hour incubation before you can start the testing process. But typically, I think right now our turnaround time is in the three to four day range. We, our, our posted turnaround time is three to five days. We're about to actually roll out into our software. Like for our clients, they'll be able to see what our, in real time, what our turnaround time is, if they need to like rush a product, if they have to hit a deadline and stuff, so. Nice, nice, I love software. Software's <laughs> great. I think, yeah. I think it's a great move. Software is awesome. I mean, that's one of the things here that we really did that helped us grow is we started, you know, we were using other people's software and we were kind of hostage to what the limitations of that were, and we started developing our own software. So we're like a year deep on our own software platform, and it's been great. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I haven't really heard of too many like good testing lab softwares out there. I think because you guys are very, uh, you know, the total adjustable market of testing labs is very low. There's not many of them. It's kind of hard to make software for it and like charge enough to kind of make the money for the it's business. It's hard right? to monetize. I mean, the the play has been kind of in, at least in the cannabis testing lab software has been getting the data. Like you make the software really cheap and getting the data so you can make a marketplace. And it was great for the level that we were at, but I mean, you know, we're a 
pretty significantly sized business now and it just wasn't able to keep up with our demand. Like we needed extra features, we needed things and it's like, you know, we have a, you know, we have a, you know, five or six person development team now working on this. Nice. You, know, you guys so. are just bulldozing ahead. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. See, but people don't understand that that's what it takes though. You do need at least, you know, uh, half a dozen or so developers. You need a year, year and a half time to actually get it to a point where you're like, okay, I could use this or, you know, maybe wait another six months, get another few developers, and then, okay, now it's actually usable for our business. Yeah, I think a lot of people take software for granted in terms of, like, to, to have a big business, you have to have software. And you have to have either a really good base software or you have to develop your own because you just can't scale without software. It cuts down on your interactional, you know, your interactional and transactional volumes. You have to have something that makes that more efficient. And I think people take for granted, too, how hard it is to develop software because you just, you know, you go on your iPhone and you're just like, oh, click this app and order food. They have no idea that how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of hours it took to be able to get to that level where you can just press a button and something happens. Oh yeah. Well, I'm happy that you could at least feel my pain. You know, <laughs> yeah. people press a button and they just expect it to work, but it's like there's a million things that need to go right and we need to do right for that button to work. So. Oh, absolutely. Like this button has, you know, it goes to this page, which goes to this page and all this thing lines up. I mean, we, we deal with it just with our COA. I think we have like hundred over a hundred things, variables that can change on a COA from dates to amounts to all that. And it's like, you do you change one thing in the software and it could throw something else out of whack and then it's like, oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's good. I, as From like a brand point of view, if I was a brand getting tested with a can of save, I would love to see like, kind of like a Domino's pizza, you know, your pizza's that's right, in the that's oven. Actually, that was kind of the inspiration for it is like the Domino's. I mean, we can't, so part of it is like we can't, we can give you an estimated completion time, which is what we're right. going to do, and then we'll give you our percent delivery. So we'll be like, right now our average is 3.2 days, whatever, and we're 87%, and then our window's 3 to 5, and we're 99%. Got so it, got it. Your, at pizza, least your pizza's on in the oven. You'll at least have an idea, and it really, it'll really help people manage their time better and like make a, make a decision where they need to rush. Do they have an event? Do they have a, you know, a retail store that they have to get into and have to get this batch tested for? Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate you doing that already. Kind of sounds like a nightmare, right? With all the all the times they have to go get tested throughout the whole procedure before it's even a finalized product, and then it is a finalized product, and they need to go get get it tested again, and they have their fingers crossed, and you know I'm sure it could be a nightmare along the way if the testing lab doesn't have this stuff together. Yeah, it, it certainly is, and we've onboarded a lot of people from other labs that got shut down. I mean, California shut like five labs down, some permanently, some for you know a month at a time, and we've dealt with onboarding people that have batches stuck and. You know, you want to talk about a nightmare. That's a nightmare is having, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of product stuck at another lab that got their license pulled because they weren't doing something right. So worst case scenario, that's really, really expensive to have to deal with something like that. But how about just the testing process itself? Like how much do you think, rule of thumb, what should brands be budgeting for the whole testing process? Um, so it really depends on the size of the brand and the product, right? If you have like a smaller batch, like a niche product, like you make rosin or something like that where you can't make 10,000 units of rosin, um, I mean, I would say it's anywhere from like three to five percent of revenue of their revenue is kind of what the what the standard is, depending on, you know, the size of the business, how many new products. You know, the more SKUs you have, the higher it's going to be. Um, but it really just depends. I mean, and we try to help make it more efficient. Like, is look, we're in a big enough market. Like, we don't have to have, we don't have to get everybody's money on everything. It's not like like we can help people if they say, hey, I've got this much budget. Help me help me work this into my production. Like. You know, like rush charges are more expensive. You know, batching is more expensive. Like there's certain ways where if you do enough R&D, you can make bigger batches. You can have the liberty. But if you don't do R&D, you better not, you know, make bigger batches. Because it's like, 
you know, a test is, you know, our list price is like between seven and $800 for a test, um, you know, like for non-discounted, but it's like, if you, if you fail a batch of like 5,000 carts, like you're saying goodbye to, you know, six figures. Yeah, you have a lot more to worry about than 700 right? It's bucks. like, you know, 50 bucks. I was trying to save 50 bucks, or yeah. I was trying to save even 700 bucks on doing like a second test to make sure, like doing a smaller pilot test and say, hey, I got a thousand, I got 5,000 of this. I just did a thousand in a batch to make sure we're good. We're good, no problems. Okay, I'm gonna do the rest. And so how do you recommend these uh, brands go about finding like a good and trustworthy testing lab to work with? Like what are some like key metrics they should be looking out for? I mean, I always say the accreditation is the most important thing. That's like, that's basically like, hey, we're getting somebody to come in here and verifies that we're doing what we, we say we're gonna do. Um, but go also go tour the lab. I mean, our, we always have people in for tours. That's a big part of our business just because, you know, our, we know our lab is nicer than anybody else's. People come in and they see the workflow. They see how clean the environment is. They see all the people working. You know, they know the other brands that we're working with. I mean, that's our goal is to really become like the consumer trusted brand. And we're, you know, we're on our way there where it's like once the consumer starts saying, hey, I need to see the CanaSafe sticker to know that I'm getting what you say I'm getting, you know, that, that's a game changer. Okay, so now we know how you should pick a good testing lab. We also know that you should probably get your product tested along the way so you don't have any surprises in the end, right? Is there any other strategies or, or like other things that brands should be aware of when it comes down to testing? Know who your neighbors are. Uh, we run into a lot of issues where people, whether it's like pesticides or microbial, you know, they're doing everything right. We've been to their business, hey, it's clean, you guys are doing everything right, you have a good process but their neighbor's spraying pesticides and it's going in the HV system or the neighbor's doing construction and kicking mold everywhere. Um, so one of the like add value add features that we offer our clients is we can do swabs. We can do microbial swab, pesticide, heavy metals, and we can swab their facility. We can swab like the outside like residue for HVAC units, everything. You know, basically to figure out like, hey, you're having a problem and we don't know where it's at. Like, let's figure out where this problem's coming from so that we can mitigate it in the future. Wow, I didn't even think of that. So like the, the guy next door make like growing corn can mess up your cultivation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've okay. seen that a lot. We went to this, it's probably like a year ago, we went to this one farm and they were so proud. They're like, this is our first time, we're organic, we didn't use any pesticides, but we're worried because we're next to a grape and bean farmer. Everything failed. <laughs> So and, do, the, uh, do the grape and, and you said beet? Bean. Bean farmer, like they don't have the same type of regulations and no. you know standard that they're supposed to be upheld at? Nope, they were just crop dusting and it was blown everywhere. <laughs> right, even though we just ingest, you know, grape and beans oh, all the time. Oh yeah, but I mean, that's one of the things about ingesting it in pesticide levels and stuff like that is there's really not an equivalent. Tobacco would be the only thing in terms of, you know, cannabis is an inhalable, so you're combusting these pesticides. Your liver and you have enzymes that can process higher levels if you're ingesting something like in an edible form, like a fruit or vegetable, um, it's still not great to obviously eat pesticides, but yeah. combusting is where the, there becomes problems. A lot of these pesticides, you know, the chemical composition changes and they become very toxic when you smoke them and inhale them. Oh, uh, okay, that makes way more sense. Cause I, I you know, I kind of heard that about other industries as well, but I had no idea that that was kind of the differentiator. Yeah, you don't, you don't smoke uh, beans and inhale them. You, at least you eat them. You wash them off you and you eat them. No. <laughs> But so like, what do you do in that situation? You know, the neighbor has, you know, pesticides and it's messing up your, your crop. So what do you do? I mean, it really depends. Some people have to even move, like as, as bad that is, or they have to, you know, really, like some problems are, you can't get around. It's like, you're in a, you're in a big heavy ag area and this probably just isn't gonna work here. Sometimes it's like, hey, let's, we're gonna run extra HVAC filters. You know, we're gonna run like a really small charcoal filter to make sure nothing gets sucked in. We're gonna make sure we're very clean and we're gonna monitor it. And that's like a lot of these, like we deal with a lot of indoor grows where 
that your indoor grow is compliant, but guess what? Your neighbors are just trapping it out in the warehouse and they're growing back there and they're spraying whatever because they don't care. It's going to New York. Uh, we've ran into a lot of those issues where they can, you know, there's certain things they can do in that situation. But some of the outdoor ag areas is tough because those guys selling beans and grapes, they're not going to stop. Can, can you share the story, like, without saying names of that specific, you know, use case? Did you, like, how did they get around solving that problem? So that one, actually, they, they, fortunately for them, they had a ton of acreage. They had, like, I think 50 or 60 acres. So what they did is they just moved the cannabis crops a couple hundred yards away, um, and we're able to mitigate a lot of those problems. Okay. Um, you okay. know, they were they moved, and they also were very hard on the neighbors in terms of, hey, if you're going to crop dust, one, we need to know. Two, like, you need to make sure that you're absolutely not, you know, affecting our area with it. Um, but they were able to, they were actually, fortunately enough, they had enough space that they were able to move um, a lot of their production far enough away that it didn't become an issue. Got it. Yeah, these are problems that I don't even consider being in the software side of things. So yeah. that sounds like a nightmare. So these brands are having to get creative with the ways that they're, you know, getting their product tested along the way. They need to make sure that that product passes, right? But sometimes it fails. So what are some, uh, like, what's some data that you could share with us as to, like, pass-fail ratios that you're seeing in the industry? So I would say our fails, our fails typically, I mean, it fluctuates. I would say our average is slightly lower than the BCC. The BCC is probably 7 to 8%. We're probably six percent, five to six percent, um, and a lot of that is like anytime there's a fail, we work with a client. We're like, hey, here's what, the, here's the problem. Like, let's solve it right now so you don't have this issue again. Like, we're very proactive with people because obviously nobody wants to fail. Um, sometimes we lose clients because they just don't want to hear about a fail. Like, you know, they're like, oh, you guys are wrong or whatever. And it's like, no, I don't, you know, I don't think so. But you know, the majority of our clients are really good. And they're like, hey, let's figure out where this problem's coming from so we never have it again. Um, and we have a lot of solutions to offer people for that. But yeah, it's, you know, anytime you fill a batch, it's tough. But we're at the point now where we're connected with another, enough other ancillary businesses where we can help our clients. Like if they have a pesticide issue in, in oil, we have somebody that can remediate it. If you have a mold issue, we have a solution for that. So, you know. And are there any specific types of products that tend to, you know, fail more than others? Um, I would say like the two highest are probably one would be flour, you know, because because flour typically fails for the most, you know, you have the most things that it can fail for, that typically fails for mold, pesticides, or heavy metals. Um, the second highest would be the disposable vape carts. Uh, we see a lot of lead in them. There's just like cheap Chinese hardware. It's definitely gone down over the past six or seven months. Uh, you know, obviously testing, you know, people are gonna make sure that they're not, they're not gonna wanna fail a batch, right. but there was a pretty good bit higher level of heavy metals fails in you know January, February for people that were using disposable cartridges. So even like their product's fine, you know, no pesticides, everything's clean, they bought their procedures down, but just at the last second they put it in the, the Chinese hardware yep. and now it's failing yep. the tests. Yeah. So that's gotta be frustrating for them. And and again, the the big businesses, guess what? They were doing heavy we we've been doing heavy metals, we we're doing it almost a year before it was required. Um, and they started doing heavy metals testing in the fall, right? You know, like if you're selling to the MedMen, you don't want to tell MedMen you can't deliver on a $100,000 order that they're placing. So they were doing it like three, four months before it was even required to make sure. And, and you know, they were like, oh crap, this hardware manufacturer is having a problem. Like, let's figure this out. And some of the operators that are in other states, you know, they've already kind of figured it out, dialed it in, done enough R&D to know. Uh, are these results available to the public to see? Like who's passing, who's failing, or is that kind of just kept internal? Um, so the BCC publishes like weekly, uh, it's not who's passing and failing, but they do post 
like there was a thousand batches and you know a hundred failed or whatever whatever that may be and then there's a I'm not sure how you can do it, but I know you can do a public record request and see passes and fails if you're adamant about it. But a lot of our clients use our uh, QR code or our logo on the label, and you can go and it pulls up the COA on the website, and you know, boom, it's there. What's uh, exactly on that COA? So this, the first page of the COA, the COA has all the testing that was done. The first page of the COA has a picture of the product, the potency, terpenes, and then it, if it passed all of the safety screening. Okay. I feel like every time I'm doing one of these interviews, we just we just uncover more and more about like why the cannabis industry is a nightmare. Like I can't yeah. imagine being a brand in the cannabis industry and going through these regulations. I actually I don't know if you saw. I tried to drink some water in here. Yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't even let me do that, so I could only imagine you know the difficulties that kind of regulation you know gets in the way of. So on that subject, what is some of the what are some of the standards that the BCC holds you guys to? I would say we're probably held to the highest level of standards in terms of like from a lab quality control. Like the BCC is harder on us than the FDA is on labs in terms of like CCVs, which are like you're running a quality control uh, sample, per, like per 20 samples, four of those 20 are quality control. So we're not even making money out of 20 samples, you know, we're not making money on four out of the 20, which is 20%. That's a pretty significant amount. The standard for like pharma, FDA is 10%. So we're running double the quality control. The ranges are very, very tight in terms of for those CCVs. You have to be between 70 and 130 percent. And then if not, you have, we have to rerun the whole sample. So that's like our standards that we run that basically, like the instruments we're measuring against standards at all times, basically to make sure we're calibrated. So we're at the mercy of the standard companies too, which aren't regulated. So they've sent us, you know, some, some we've had some issues with them where they can't, you know, supply the right batch or the ratios are off and we're having to correct them and say, hey, I think we think you guys are wrong here. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough, but it's, you know, it's it's always ever evolving and it makes it hard to compete, which is, it's a good and a bad thing, right? You really got to be on top of it. You got to be focused. You got to be locked in. You have to have a good team to participate in the cannabis industry, which is good if you have all those things. It's bad if you just kind of want to be loose and run and gun. And Yeah, it's definitely not what it used to be. It's kind of just flipped, you know, 180. It's like the complete opposite side of the spectrum. I think, you know, to your note for sure, regulations is makes things difficult, but it also makes things difficult for everybody, right? So if you want to come into the space, you better be ready to kind of deal with that and only the strongest are surviving right now. Right. And that's kind of what we've seen. I've seen the best teams, at least in terms of our clients, in terms of our success is like, you kind of have to match cannabis experience with business experience. Because we do have some different cultural dynamics in the cannabis industry that makes it unique. It's a very small industry in terms of who's doing it, who's been around, the relationships, all of those things. So you kind of have to have both. And I always tell people, I give, you know, people ask me, oh, I want to get into cannabis, give me some advice. Two things, don't get high at work and learn the rules. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does the BCC come and do their own audit or are they kind of just relying on the ISO? So they actually come and, and inspect us. So the BCCs, I think we've had two or three, um, if I remember correctly, inspections by the BCC, and they'll just come in and they'll be like, hey, what's that sample right there? I want to see all the paperwork for that sample. And it's like, it's kind of a great test for the lab because it's like, you better have your crap together because there's no like, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to ask for this sample. It's like, they're just walking around and they're like, hey, let's see the paperwork right there for that one. So, you know, it really makes you be on your game. And that's, you know, they're, they hold the labs to a pretty high standard. I think, you know, right now they're a little bit 
busy and bogged down in terms of staffing. Like we see some unscrupulous things going on in the market with other labs, but I think once they get caught up, they're going to kind of go back around and inspect the other labs. And we, you know, we, we have an open door. We're always we're excited when they come. You know, we're like we do all this. We do all this stuff right. We work really hard. We have a whole quality team and stuff. We don't. I mean, when and they come, it's like you know, we get, it's like it's like getting to play a game, right? We do all this practice, and if you never get to play a game, then that's not very exciting. Yeah, it makes sense. You walk around, you're like, see, look, one, nobody's high yeah. at work, and two, <laughs> what was the second one? Learn the rules. And we know the rules, right? Yeah. So they come in and they check everything, but do they have their own like third-party unbiased testing lab where they're really like starting to compare testing results, or are they really trusting the independent testing labs to do their best to be unbiased? So they don't have that yet. I know that the BCC was actually planning on doing their own lab where they could check stuff, but as far as I'm aware, they don't have that yet. And one of the problems with you know, the, the standardization is they have all these rules, but this space really isn't standardized. Like if you look at how other ag and other labs you know, has to test products, it's pretty standardized. You have to do this method and you have to do this prep. And here's like three options, right? And it's kind of up to you. Whereas cannabis is like, hey, we don't know, but you have to follow these rules and kind of figure it out. So you do run into a situation where you have some labs doing, you know, different methods and, and using different variables that technically fit within the regulations, but they're not good science. Um, so we, we certainly see some of that. Right, so because there's no third-party lab that um, you know, the BCC has to verify the results, is there room for bad actors in the space, like testing labs, uh, you know, kind of passing product that maybe shouldn't be passing? Absolutely, I mean, anytime there's money, there's always, and in the industry, there's always room for bad actors. Um, especially in this industry, I mean, it's extremely expensive to open and operate a lab. I mean, millions of dollars in equipment, labor costs are insane, so you have to get to a pretty high threshold and level before you can get into profitability. So there's certainly like, if you're just starting out, you're like, hey, and it's not going well, there's certainly you know, people that are gonna do unscrupulous things and, and pass products and risk consumer safety just to you know, stay open or make some money. Yeah, and I feel for you guys too, because it's like, you're, you're supposed to keep your clients happy, right? And if your clients come to you and your, their stuff is failing, then sometimes they could be unhappy, right? Absolutely, typically we lose clients they fail and they just don't want to hear about it and they want to go somewhere that's going to pass them um, or if they don't pay their bill. <laughs> right, but sometimes they need to understand that like, hey, I'm failing because it's my fault, I'm not failing because it's right. Canada's fault. Look, we right? don't want to fail anybody. I mean, we want to protect consumer safety, but we don't want any of our clients to fail. And, you know, I, I feel like we go kind of above and beyond when there are failures to help people address problems so that they don't have these issues. I mean, that's why, like, look at our top clients, look how long we've worked for them. And, I mean, they're killing it. And there's a reason to that. It's like we're, you know, we're part of, you know, kind of we're like a team dynamic in terms of they have to be successful for us to be successful. So it's in our best interest to help them not fail products, you know, and make sure that they're doing R&D, make sure all their processes are vetted. And, and, you know, the tests are what it is. Like if you fail, you get a fail. Um, and we can address those problems. But yeah, typically the, the good businesses, they care. You know, they don't want to release a product that could harm consumers or that's not compliant. You know, they want to do everything right. Like there's a lot of brands who their mission is like, hey, I want to deliver clean products because for the past you know, 20 years, nobody's really cared. And you know, a lot of people use pesticides for a lot of time. They use PGRs, they use miclobutanol, you know, they use avmectin, they use all these pesticides that are very harmful to consumers. Right, I mean, it's one thing to lose you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. It's also another thing to release that product that should have failed and now consumers are getting sick or you know, hurt because of these products, right? Yeah, it's a liability. You don't want to be responsible for giving somebody cancer or, or causing somebody health issues, especially somebody that has cancer and they're using this product to help them. 
and you know, or somebody else that's immunocompromised. I mean, I always, I always tell people like, because people say, hey, what, what, what can you actually die from? You know, and a lot of like pretty much everything could be harmful. Metals could be very harmful. Pesticides could be harmful, and you could certainly die if you did it, you know, every day and you were over the threshold. But Salmonella and E. coli, I mean, we see food recalls all the time. That's a serious thing. People die from that. Like every year, there's hundreds of deaths, probably thousands all over the world from Salmonella and E. coli. So that's a serious thing that can, you can actually kill somebody. And are, there any, are, like, are there any repercussions for that? Like who's actually liable? Let's say, uh, you know, brand knows their stuff should have failed. The testing lab passed it. They're a bad actor. And now it's in the hands of consumers. Somebody gets sick or hurt. Um, I don't know. That's that's a tough one, right? Because, you know, the the public is always going to sue whoever has the money. <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how litigation works. Um, and typically, if a lab's doing that and they get caught, they're going to be out of business on, uh, you know, by next Monday. Um, so it's tough. I mean, they probably, they probably, you know, people if they're suing, they probably go after both parties. Who's liable? I don't know. It's hard to say because if you're a brand and you think you're doing everything right, and a lab's telling you you are, but you're not, is it really your fault? And you know, it's. It's definitely probably on the lab. Right. And have you seen labs get shut down because of this, like specifically, or what is the BCC doing to address this problem? Yeah, we've seen, you know, five labs that we know about that got shut down. You know, a couple got shut down permanently for basically not following the rules. Um, you know, one of them was discovered, you know, it's, it's all over the news, but one of them discovered that not even being able, not even doing the testing. And you, if you want to hear a funny story about that, you know, one of our clients was testing with them. And this client, has, I don't think they've ever failed anything. They're like super clean, meticulous, small batch, they're on top of it. And uh, this lab that was doing all these bogus results had actually failed them a couple times for like a pesticide that they'd never heard of. And they're like, you know, they were pissed. They're like, what the hell? Like they went and got retested other places, no issue. Well, after this lab got shut down, they found out through discovery that this lab was just randomly failing people for stuff just to keep within like the BCC window of fails, right? So, <laughs> so they, cause they weren't wow. really testing this stuff. But they're like, all right, we gotta fail a couple people this week. You know, let's just randomly pick and see who it's gonna be. So obviously that was infuriating for this brand who is doing everything right, thought they were, you know, getting their product tested and then they had this lab failing them for random stuff just so, you know, they could have, they could hit a reasonable fail ratio. And this was a licensed, like BCC licensed lab. This is a lab, licensed lab. lab. Yes, it's all over the news. I'm not going to oh, say wow. any names. And but... you're going to check this out. <laughs> right, so, okay, that actually brings up a good point, though. So, you know, on the retail end of things, we deal with a ton of unlicensed operators. You know, you want to think the licensed ones are actually doing things the right way, and the unlicensed ones are doing things the wrong way. In the testing lab scenario, the licensed, there's licensed ones doing things the wrong way. Are there unlicensed testing labs or is that not really an issue that you guys deal with? Um, so there's labs that haven't got their license yet and they're doing R&D, they can't do any final batch testing. But we've done some pretty cool studies with in terms of licensed versus unlicensed where people bring product and unlicensed. Because like, when I started doing this, 70% of products failed for pesticides. It was terrible. Now it's significantly less. I mean, uh, that go to like final batch products is probably you know one to 2%. In terms of R&D, it's probably you know eight to twelve percent, so it's significantly lower. Um, the other thing too is they don't go to market anymore in the licensed supply chain. There's not even you know the recall is not really even an issue because you test a product, it fails, you don't get to sell it. Um, whereas unlicensed, they're just going straight through and selling it. So I imagine you know fr from the data that we've seen, the fail ratio is probably around fifty percent right now, forty to fifty percent in the unlicensed shops in terms of 
Wow. Yeah, I remember you telling me, uh, you know, maybe it was about two years ago, like a year and a half ago, that even, you know, the people that had their licenses, it was about 70%, right? And that was a nightmare. It's like people are supposed to put their products on the shelf, but 70% is failing. What do you think are some of the stuff that people start to do to kind of get that number down? They stop using pesticides. I mean, that was the big culprit, right? You're, you're heavy metals and micros, probably about the same ratio. I mean, people didn't n always know about it, but those are things that, like, you know, cleanliness and, and like growing mediums, those are things like that where you can kind of easily change the dynamic. But people were knowingly spraying pesticides. I mean, there's the cocktail of pesticides where you don't have any bug problems and you can have, you know, nice, big, juicy, swollen buds. And that was kind of what everybody was doing. Well, it's good to see we're, you know, finally coming out of the Stone Age and we're heading into the future. You already touched a little bit about software being kind of the next step for CannaSafe. What else are you seeing in the technology aspect of things for testing labs in the future? Like, where do you see that heading? Um, I think that we're going to have some level of standardization, and that's going to kind of affect the technology. I mean, we're operating on analytical world technology, right? There's other labs. There's FDA labs. There's food labs that are using the same stuff as us. Uh, we positioned ourselves really well in terms of we got the newest, best tech when we started, and you know, typically the shelf life for stuff like that we have, it was a significant advancement. It's like anywhere from five to eight years where, you know, this is going to be kind of market-leading technology in terms of how fast you can test stuff. Like, for instance, our GCs, which is basically an oven, how fast it can heat up and cool down. You know, our LCs, from a size perspective, they're the smallest, most robust, fastest instruments you can get. Tech-wise, another component is going to be just the data, like the testing data, right? Like, you know, what, is it, what does it mean? You know, what is, you know, what do, what do the combination of all these things mean? You know, how do, how do people make better products? How do people have better processes? I think that's going to be a huge component. Like, if you look at analytics right now as one of the huge industries, everybody's benefiting. Like, the more you know, the better decisions you can make. So I see that as kind of be, becoming a component of our business. Um, you know, we're working within our software platform to be able to really give people quality data that they can look at and use. Where I'm excited to see that go is, I mean, you could find out, it's one thing to find out, like, how do you make a better product? How do I get higher THC content or, you know, whatever the consumers want? But I'm sure there's, like, a medical aspect of that as well, right? Like, what combination of terpenes can help with, like, certain ailments and conditions, right? Do you see that coming, you know, within the testing labs and being able to help with that? Absolutely. I mean, I think from a data perspective, I don't know about from a medical perspective, but from a data perspective, you know, we're going to be able to say, you know, here's... You know, here's these ratios, and then you pair that with on the medical side where somebody's doing like a clinical research trial and saying, oh, okay, this is the sleep combination. This is the best sleep combination. Yeah. This is the best pain combination. This is the best, you know, for, for cancer or whatever. So. Yeah, of course. They can't just give the, you know, the patient like random cannabis, right? And they need to know exactly what are the components within the, within the plant, you know, and get the data from the testing lab. Right. And that's part of the thing is like you have to you know, you have to be able to give somebody a product that's not variable. It can't be this one time and this the next time, especially if you're trying to put somebody on a treatment pro uh, program. You have to be able to give them the same thing every time, and, you know, we're part of that component in terms of making sure it is what they say it is. Nice. I like that. You know, it's no more just, like, smoke weed yeah. for your glaucoma. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, you know, there's a specific yeah, a compound yeah. within the specific, maybe even like a pill form or something that comes from the cannabis plant. Right. right. Okay, cool. So, as far as the BCC and regulations, where do you see that going in the future? Uh, do you see them ever loosening up with it? Maybe they're going to be even tighter in the future? What do you think? I think it stays put for now. I mean, I think right now the, the biggest problem that the market and industry is having is just the black market, right? We have a pretty small percentage of people following the regulations. It's less than 20%. So I think at this point in time, the regulations are going to be pretty stable. 
Uh, we need to get a bigger market adaptation, you know, from all the, the black and gray market people that aren't following the regulations. But yeah, I think it's I think it stays pretty stable at least for the next three or four or five years. Um, you know, any type of changes are probably going to be made from a federal level. I think standardization is going to be a big thing. Um, I think the feds are going to probably look at California, right? This is the place. I mean, this is the biggest cannabis industry in the world. Um, you know, probably about as big as almost all the other states combined at this time. Um, it's going to be an export state, so I think the, you know, the, next, the next big thing is going to be what do the feds do and how do they treat it. Um, and that'll probably be the next time we have any type of significant impact. I learned a lot today, man. Thank you so much for you know, being here and uh, you know, answering the interview questions. For sure, you're welcome. Thanks for coming by. Of course, of course. Why don't you go ahead, you know, look into this camera, you know, give the shout outs, your Instagram, your website, anything that you want the people to know. You can find us on Instagram at Canasafe. Our website's www.csalabs.com and look for our sticker on packaging. Ask brands, are they testing at Canasafe? Nice. And there you have it, guys. So thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Connecting Cannabis. As always, you can check us out at webjoint.com. Just go on there, put your email in, sign up for our mailing list, and you'll get these as they come out. Until next time.